everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. I'm so proud to have as my guest today, Mr. Jake LeClaire, a recovery coach here in Poway. How you doing, Jake? Hey, John. It's great to be here. Yeah. I'm really excited. It's mm-hmm. an honor and a privilege to spend this time together. Terrific. Um, you know, what really concerns me and frankly pisses me off is that too many people are dying of addiction and drug overdose right now. Mm-hmm. And it's become my honor and privilege in my life to live on purpose in my own recovery as a recovery coach. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's what your shirt says right there. That's from, right here. From dope to hope. You got it. I like that. Thank you. Um, yeah. You know, you and I, we met as, you know, we connected on the internet and you and I met at Starbucks a few weeks ago, got to know each other. I was really impressed with the work that you're doing um, as a recovery coach, helping people, you know, overcoming addiction. And I mean, there's a lot going on in the world with opioids and, and, uh, and in general drugs, you know, um, how, how did you get into this? I mean, this is an interesting uh, career path you're on. Sure thing. Well, my message is truly the result of my mess. And I was in addiction actively for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. From the time I was 25 to 35, things were really dark and they were really messy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is also uh, a a family disease. Everyone gets ill when someone around them, a loved one, perhaps is suffering from addiction. Uh, And what I have noticed is also there's a propensity in this family disease for people, including the addicts, to want to put their head in the sand for a while. So I had my head in the sand, I said, said for about 10 years in my own addiction. Wow. And you know what started out? Let's face it. uh, Kids do drugs. And this is a drug nation. And what started out like any other kid having some drinks and doing some drugs uh, turned into more and more. And I remember there were a couple like what I call critical turning points, right? And the first was around May 2005. And I just remember how much I loved Long Island iced tea at that point. (laughs) Everybody else was happy with a single shot drink, yeah, right? And I had to have that thing full of liquor. And it's like almost 100% booze, isn't it? Basically. And the other nine people think it tastes terrible, and to me it tastes great. And also to me, there's just never enough. And that was the point where once I'd had one drink, I was going to have 10 drinks. And I was going to have 10 of those strong drinks, right? And there was no telling what was going to happen. Sometimes the night ended peacefully and normally. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, who knows what, some pretty dark stuff went down. Mm -hmm. And it just progressed. It progressed to the point when I was living in San Francisco a few years later in the late 2000s that I picked up cocaine on an invitation by the way under the influence of alcohol it's amazing how inhibitions drop right oh fully 100% yeah Yeah. and um, I had a curiosity for several years about cocaine uh, but what I found was all of the things that felt so uncomfortable to be in my own skin were relieved and released when I was under the influences of these substances all my problems disappeared yeah and I could live in the unreality that I so strongly desired. I come from the school of the hard knocks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's trauma in my history. There's dysfunction in my history. Uh, and those wounds were in me. And 
Well, I'm really excited that today we're talking so much more about mental and emotional health. And it's become even in some circles somewhat normal, if there is a normal, to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. That was not the way it was 20 and 40 years ago. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is true about my story, you know, I come from um, – a family of Italian immigration, right? And I come from a family that carries the burden of war uh, as veterans, and those events leave lasting scars that are passed in our genes, right? Traumas that we inherit without actually experiencing. So I think that there's there's actually been um, that in my story, and. Um, what I've also done, right, after reaching my rock bottom in 2017 is healed and recovered. And I feel that I'm a walking miracle, frankly. You know, when I look at the statistics of the uh, people who get out of this mess of addiction, it's it's just blows my mind. I pinch myself to think that I got out of this. Uh, I've worked hard at it. I've I've worked my backside off to recover. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I did was I got professional help. And the other thing I did was I looked high and low for any option I could find to recover. And I pulled in those those options and I found what worked for me as an individual. And today I'm living a life beyond my wildest dreams, but as I've started to paint the picture, it hasn't always been that way. And so what I've what I've done really is taken my own mess, picked out the pieces that worked really well for me, and developed a program, a program to help others who desire change and desire transformation to recover from their own addictions. And what we know is addiction recovery works incredibly well when the person has the desire to do the work. But we also know that without that desire, we can't make anybody do anything they don't want to know, do. But sometimes the desire doesn't happen until they hit rock bottom. Well, that's just it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's rock bottom and there's intervention. Ah. And uh, I've seen incredible results from both. In my story, uh, it's a story of rock bottom. But here's what's happening now. We have fentanyl in the narcotics. Yeah. Yeah. That's some serious stuff right there. Something like 14 to 15% of our narcotics in San Diego County have fentanyl in them. And it started with just the opioids because fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. Right. But then the drug dealers figured out that if they cut any of the drugs with fentanyl, they can increase their profits. Yeah. So it's really a profit pull. And here's, here's the other really sick and sad truth. When the addicts hear of someone dying of overdose in that twisted mind, that addict thinks, I want to get some of that dope. And it actually attracts them to seeking the dealer that provided the Because they know it's more dangerous, more on the edge. Bigger high. A bigger high. More relief from whatever pain they're feeling. Wow. Yeah. I want to I be really transparent. Um, you know... A lot of addicts, including myself, will say, oh, this is a party. I'm having fun. And maybe in the beginning, because this plays with dopamine, and dopamine's pretty fun neurochemistry to get into, right? And for me, it's extra really fun. Uh, But 
people don't just wake up one day and think like, oh, I want to put insane amounts of drugs in my body, <laughs> right? Right. Of course not. Yeah. yeah. There's a wounding in there. Yeah. Something is wounded and this is an incredibly effective remedy to that in the beginning. These drugs really work really well at addressing people's primary problem, this pain. And then one day they stop working because they're hooked. Yeah. Or, or they stop working and then they want to ratchet it up, you know? Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, this, is, this is so amazing because, you know, I just trace my own history, you know, and when I'm young, uh, when I was, you know, a lot younger, you, know, you didn't even think about it as a way to escape the, the problems that you were having in your life. It was mm-hmm. a party, right? Mm-hmm. And then as I've gotten older, as, I, as an adult, I've begun, begun to understand myself a lot more. And I realize now when I drink, it's definitely an escape, 100 mm-hmm. percent, you know, from any stresses that I might be feeling. And then it makes you really ask yourself serious questions. But sometimes when you're young, you don't have that self-awareness. Um, and, yeah, you can fall down a deep hole. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the human condition includes being present and escaping. Yeah. And it, it's my experience that it's awfully uh, interesting and tempting to escape oh, all sorts tons. of ways to escape. Yeah. I can look at Amazon for too long and escape, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got a package. Yeah. <laughs> I got a pile of packages right. the other day from Amazon that just blew my mind to see how much I bought. Uh, but this you, one, you posted that online. Did you? I saw yes, that picture. Yes. I'm thinking of a new program, Amazon yeah. Anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all jokes aside, well, you know, it's, it's really tempting in the stress of today's life to escape. Oh yeah. And, um, all sorts of, of wild things transpire. And I, let's go back to the alcohol for a minute. You know, it's easy to jump down the road of the narcotics and, and how um, deadly they are. But just as many people, if not more, are going to die from alcohol-related causes this year as the opioid problem. And oh, that's yeah. just what's measured. Okay, so let's, right. let's play with these numbers for a minute. <laughs> we're, we're measuring as a country about 70,000 people in the U.S. dying of alcohol-related issues this year. But that's not really the number. These are really undercalculated. There's also research that says it's actually more like four to 500,000 dying every year of alcohol. Because what we don't measure is that guy who drank the bottle of vodka, climbed the ladder and fell. Then we record it as accidental fall on his death certificate rather than he drank a bottle of vodka. Right. Right. So the, the, the true number, huge, but the official number, 70,000 or so. And... In the last 10 to 20 years, that number has doubled just with alcohol. So it's only on the rise. And living here in San Diego, a craft beer capital, I know from my own experience, man, when I found that 9% IPA when I moved here five years ago, (laughs) I was off to the show. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we also, right, when it comes to drinking... Of all the drugs, and I use the term drugs broadly, anything that changes our mind or body that alters it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I include alcohol, and that can be controversial at times because there's folks who want to divide alcoholism and drug addiction, but I just put it all together. Yeah, well, it does belong together, no doubt. And and then we can parse it at a, at a more appropriate point. But for now, um, one big body of drugs, and man, the the thing with alcohol is... It's the only drug at the party that if I'm not having any, 
people want to know why I'm not drinking. Yeah. What's yeah. wrong with you? Yeah. What's wrong with me is I'm highly allergic to this stuff. Yeah. There's no telling what will happen when I start. You'll probably need to pick me up in the jail or plan my funeral. And you want to know what's wrong with me for not drinking. Yeah. yeah. That's a real deal. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at, at least. And then there are other folks, you know, the other nine out of ten who can have two drinks. They're happy. They're good. They're done for the night. It provided yeah. the effect they desired. And that was that. But but. And there's uh, about one in 10 of us who just can't have a healthy relationship with, with the drinks. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting, too, because I thought I saw something on the news that was saying something along alcohol-related deaths were on the decline. It might have been related to, to drunk driving. I can't remember. It was just one of those scrolling gotcha. headlines, you know. Okay. But, but I think the key point that I'm understanding that you're saying is it depends on how they – you know, capture the data For sure. and how they choose to categorize those deaths. What story do I want to tell? Yeah. yeah. And there's probably some people or family members that don't want to say, you know, he drank a bottle uh, of vodka and they're going to instead say it was a ladder death. Right. Sure thing. Um, but yeah, this is serious. That's it. Well, and let's add another drug in there uh, when it comes to the numbers uh, and how serious this is that. We've come a long way, speaking of things on the decline, Yeah, but it's still an astronomical number. Do you have any sense of the number of deaths from nicotine? And I hope you'd agree it's also addicting. Well, no doubt. You know, I mean, you know, my, my, my parents, people in my family have been fighting that addiction for as long as I've known. Um, but, yeah, the number is astronomical, right? I Another mean, half million every year. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. You know, lung disease and, and other complications from smoking. That's it. So we have these everyday drugs that are in our homes, right? And then yeah. we have the, the gnarly ones, cocaine, heroin, crack, methamphetamine, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, but, but man, it, 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 I just sit back and try to absorb how deadly the the, every, the everyday ones are alone, but even the everyday ones, the so-called legal ones, there you go. they're still an escape. Mm -hmm. You know, they're stress relievers. Some people have them as that. They're they're of course addictive, um, but it is interesting how you know we choose to make certain ones illegal or voodoo, and then others are socially accepted, mm -hmm. like at a party. That's it. That's you it. know, well, and. There's a movement there. There's a change that I'm seeing. And that has to do with the opioid prescription drugs, right? Because it is legal when prescribed by the doctor. Right. And we see time and time again that the story plays out. Johnny broke his arm. Johnny got the pills from the doctor. He stayed to the prescribed routine from the doctor. And one morning he woke up when he couldn't stop. And then he needed to go find more. And I can tell you from my own experience of being completely mentally hijacked by the narcotic that when somebody needs more, somebody's going to get more. Yeah. Yeah. And now Johnny is looking for the pills and he needs money to buy them. And he's getting caught up with some gnarly characters to acquire them. Eventually, Johnny can't find more with the money he has or he's run out of money. Something goes on or goes down. And Johnny turns to a really effective cousin of these pills called heroin. Yeah. And that's it. And Johnny may live in a very typical place 
like Poway, where you never expect to see that. And Johnny may also be one of our first responders or law enforcement officers in the community who got hurt on the job. And that's a, a really uh, pertinent, relevant issue playing out in our community today. And we're getting information and the, the news is getting out uh, about the consequences, the possible consequences of these narcotics. But to think that, you know, the, the person who uh, is out there trying to help us could face that kind of fate unknowingly just following the doctor's orders is a very wild time that we live in. Yeah. Well, I, I just have a couple of thoughts on that. The, the first is, is you know, there are people that are out there that are that are addicted, that are either on the opioids or shooting up heroin, mm-hmm. that appear to be highly functional adults, mm-hmm. at least on the surface. Um, but, but in fact, many of them are really, yeah, floating, right? Well, myself included, uh-huh. right? In ten years of this uh, progression, uh, I'd been a high school class valedictorian. I attended the Ivy League. I was a leader in the Fortune 500 in the corporation I worked for until I lost that job due to my addiction. But I, I performed um, for uh, 10 years very actively and probably for about 20 years um, in a less severe state. Um, and then it just didn't work anymore. It was too dark. It was too hopeless. And I was at the end of the rope. But Absolutely. What ended in food stamps and not understanding why my family wouldn't give me any more money to buy more drugs started in a life of of absolute promise and prosperity. So when you were the high school valedictorian, the Ivy League student, and you had an addiction, Mm -hmm. were people unaware that you were addicted or was it very visible? I would say it was completely invisible. Really? Yeah. You know, I've always been excessive. So the behavior started with doing really well in school. I would say that the the grades I got, the achievement, I was hooked to it. And I w- there's all these behaviors as a society that we encourage and we celebrate. And uh, what looked on the outside like accomplishment was uh, on the inside, just a desire to be excessive, anything to not be present with myself. And mm. then what I found when I got to the Ivy League was it really kicked my butt. Uh, it was a challenge. And alcohol was an extremely effective remedy to that stress. And then, yeah, my impression of a college party is nobody's sitting around saying who's drinking too much. It's more like who can drink the most. Yeah, Totally. Yeah. Wow. Um, You know, I I just think about myself and I never really thought about being a a student that is very focused on getting high grades as its own sort of an addiction to to be excessive and then how that can take a turn and turn to drugs Mm -hmm. because it's wanting that extreme. Maybe like you said, losing yourself in the process. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, when you're just focusing on grades, 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 you lose awareness of you. Absolutely. Um, wow. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. All sorts of ways to be numb. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, the other thing you were talking about is, you know, how 
a person can have a legitimate, you know, injury, work injury, and then suddenly they become addicted. And I, I just, I'll just share a short story for me. And this was about almost 20 years ago. Um, I was living here in Poway, way out on the end of Garden Road, and I fell off my ladder putting up my Christmas lights. And I was really messed up. I mean, I was in the hospital for a week. I was out of work for three months and, and I was taking Vicodin mm-hmm. in large doses at first just to get through that. And then as I started to recover, I started being told to wean myself off the Vicodin, but it was a struggle. I kind of wanted to keep reaching for it. Um, and then as I was, when I was on the Vicodin, I would, I would be sitting in a chair and I would almost have a sense that I was floating above myself. Mm-hmm. And um, but again, a form of escape, but a, a, in this case, escape from pain. But I really, really felt that addiction. And I, somehow, some way, I was able to stop it. But I could, I could sense it. Um, I know there's a lot of people that, you know, they don't sense it. And then the next thing you know, they're, they're buried in it. One too many, a little too late. Yeah. Yeah. The phenomenon of craving is incredible. We're all wired individually. And in my work, I approach each person that way, right? It's my job to parse down to the, the what is going to work for this one person's situation uh, since we're all different. Somebody else in your shoes just had either one too many pills or they're oh, wired differently or I could a see different that. pill. Uh, All the variables, right? So many variables that I face when I sit down with one person and we collaborate on what we're going to do to go from totally hopeless and broke to a a hopeful, joyful state. I want to honor that you're being vulnerable and open with your own experience. I really appreciate that. And I feel like the, the needle is moving in terms of recognition that this is in most of our families and in most oh, of yeah. our lives. And it's not in our own blood. It's you know somebody that's on the, the street we live on. And um, in living here in Poway for the past year, I moved out from Pacific Beach. So I did most of my destruction in its darkest form down in Pacific Beach. Okay, <laughs> There's a lot of riffraff down there. <laughs> it was wild, man. <laughs> and then I spent a year and a half. There's a lot of recovery down there, too, because... There's a certain amount of folks that fall out of that life and into recovery. So there's great recovery in Pacific Beach. Super. And a year and a half of that, and I was ready to get out to the country. Uh, and Poway's been amazing. So been here about 15 months, and part of coming up to Poway has been returning to my sacred space. What I found in my recovery and in my 32 years of being around horses is that that's where I feel most at home. And that's been possible by getting up to Poway. When I was seven, my dad got me into horses. And in all the dysfunction, the horses made a life or death difference for me. And there's something just totally magical that I experienced. I'm seeing you smile. I'm wondering if you have an experience. And uh, it's, it's great. I have four horses up here now. Uh, I have two full-size ones. And then I have two mini hope dealers they're about 30 inches tall and they weigh somewhere between two 300 pounds they're horses i'm talking about really yeah okay that's and that's neat they live right in our our side yard we live over on the east side of town uh at the end of twin peaks in uh a cottage uh, up on the hill there and uh for as perfect as this place is john we could also get my car I don't know any drug dealers right now, okay? But <laughs> okay. we can go get my car, and I bet you a hundred bucks 
that I could acquire narcotics in 15 minutes from the time we got my car and rolled out of here. 15 minutes? Sure, sure. First thing I might check out is people on the fringe uh, at the local recovery meetings. They're probably connected to the narcotics sources. You know, I interviewed a young man who'd recently graduated from high school. And the high schoolers in Poway uh, tell me, that they think of going down to Rancho Penasquitas is where they go to buy their drugs, but they don't have to go that far. John, I want you to know it's normal, typical for cocaine and Adderall to be readily available in the high schools here in Poway. And back to that success and achievement that we were talking about, right? The pressure on these kids to achieve. See, when I was in college, the Adderall and the cocaine, that was like a law school thing. Yeah. It, had, it had started in law schools because yeah. okay? there's the curve. Uh, <laughs> if you're not taking the drugs, you're at the bottom of the curve. Right. But that's now in the high schools. The pressure to perform and achieve is fueling the amazing flow of the stimulants so they can get more focus and get better grades, better colleges, make mom and dad happy in the short term in our high schools. And that's happening in Poway all day, every day. Because some kid... Right. It's it's not it's also not guys like me, guys my age, putting those drugs in the high school. It's kids high school age selling the drugs in the high school. Wow. Yeah. Well, first of all, I believe you um, uh, as far as the culture of Poway. And I've commented on this number, numerous times. It's a very competitive city. Mm-hmm. Um, not you know, certainly from the academic perspective, achievement. Athletically, it's a competitive city. I mean, there's even a little bit of like keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. in this city. Uh, and that has, you know, there, there's some positive to that, but there is a dark side. Um, we hear these stories about the drugs in our schools. And, you know, heck, I'm like 54 years old. I went to high school a million years ago. And maybe I was naive at the time, but I'd imagine there was drugs being flowing through my high school. But at some level, you think, it's almost like not real, right? Mm-hmm. That you hear the stories about the drugs in the schools, but if you're not really witnessing it, it's almost like a, you know, a lifetime movie or something like that, right? Um, but it's a real deal. And, and we've heard stories of, well, there's been numerous um, high school students here in Poway that, that have passed away. Absolutely. Because of alcohol, or I'm going to say alcohol or drugs. I'm going to correct myself. Because of drugs. Sure thing. Um, and whether it's been an overdose or it's been um, uh, a car crash or whether it's been some dark behavior that happened as a result of it that put people unnecessarily at risk. That's a real deal. It's for real. And at the end of the rope, suicide is often on the mind of the person suffering. For me, Mm. in the last six months of active addiction, I tried purposely to overdose at least 20 times it just becomes this maddening i can't live with it i can't live without it my brain's totally hijacked by these chemicals and i can't see any options so the only option i can see is to end it that's very real and it all is starting you know on your podcast the other day about the farm you guys talked about the parties happening out at the farm, right? Yeah, yeah. It's starting. Uh, that's how it was for me in high school, too. I, I grew up on 2,000 acres of farmland in a rural community. 
And the kids go out and drink beer somewhere that nobody's supervising. Yep. And um, mm-hmm. marijuana is just mainstream now. Uh, it's legal, so it must be good or not mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. uh, because of the fog these people are in. It, it's It's so much the same. And yet so much worse in terms of the access and the dealing. And yet, you know, I didn't have cocaine or marijuana in my school because there were so few kids. It was so small. It was so rural. There just wasn't the access. Where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York. Okay. So, yeah, that's going to be pretty rural up there. That's it. But we just drink more beer as a result, you know? (laughs) Just more quantities of that alcohol. Yeah. Well, there's always that escape. That's it. You know, it's funny is I've uh, I've talked to some longtime Poway people Mm -hmm. that have grew up here. Their parents lived here. And I tell them where I live in Poway and the homes where we live were built like in the late Mm -hmm. 80s. And they'll tell me, oh, yeah, back in the early 80s, late 70s, we used to go up there and just go drink beer Mm -hmm. because the kids are always trying to find a way. And that's yeah, at the farm. It's actually the the old Stone Ridge clubhouse is like turned into this graffiti party trash place um yeah but it's hidden right it's well it's out of view the the place where i board my horse is out in sycamore canyon when i ride my horse out on the trails i can tell where the the high school parties are going down out there too and um, there's something about like once once in active addiction i can sniff this stuff out right and uh, i know where the party's at john yeah and um the other thing i i get really uh just surprised by the part of my my sniffer here mm-hmm. is the amount of wine that flows out of the vons over in Rancho Bernardo every afternoon so we also know that alcohol consumption and abuse among retired folks is drastically increasing oh yeah and for sure. um it, it's just part of my radar to to notice this right and you go over there any afternoon, and there is a significant amount of wine sales flowing out into the retirement community. And, um, you know, I have decided, because I spent enough time in the, the living dead, that's what I call it, the walking dead, right? <laughs> that I don't want to be part of the walking dead anymore. I want to be part of the the living living. And uh, my transformation from living dead to living living, it's been a lot of work. But it's a lot of work to trudge to the store every day and get that bottle. It's a lot of money. It's it's a lot of heartache. It's a lot of pain. And um, the denial, that the lying part of this disease keeps all that from me. Yeah. People, people are, it is a disease. People are in, inflicted with it. They're feeling pain. But sometimes they don't even realize mm. that they're really in in the morass of it all. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting too is amongst um, middle age um, or, or even you know soon to be seniors. I go flipping through my Facebook, you know, and you, know, you see people just celebrating that glass of wine, you know, and have it's to have it, yeah, and yeah. it's you know it's something that they revere. And I mean, heck, I've I, I, I've been that way to a point with martinis. Mm. Um, because of the social, um, you know, the social pressures, sometimes those things become exalted as um, something we celebrate when really it's tearing us down. For all doing it, it must be normal. 
Must be okay. Right. Yeah. But but the things that are illegal, that's the bad stuff. It must right. be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, because we, we've talked a little bit about this with other people about how it's interesting the the fact that here in Poway, there are no um, uh, dispensaries for, for legal marijuana. Sure. But there are lots of places where you can buy alcohol. Sure. And so there's a little bit of a disparity there. Um, yeah, it, the, the, there's so much uh, health issues, mental health, physical health, societal, cultural issues around this. It's really cool that you're in this in this world because you. you have a lot to offer. Thank you. Well, I appreciate uh, you saying that. Most likely, this message is uncomfortable for somebody as a listener to hear. And, um, you know, I found that that often is just an invitation to take a look at myself. And I, I do want to say uh, to anyone listening that I invite them to take what they like about our conversation and just leave the rest. Okay. I get this is controversial. It's personal. Okay. It's deep and uh, it's raw at times. So for anybody who's listening and they're feeling like some of this is resonating, but some of it's uncomfortable, just take what you like and let go of the rest. Uh, and, and hopefully there's something in this message that may help. Because as I said, there's a solution. And I notice as I'm talking, your your dog is choosing to come up to me at certain times. Yeah. And that's very that's very pertinent and relatable for me in the field of animal assisted therapies. Mm. And um, I'm paying attention to, to when your dog wants to really nudge in and what I'm talking about. And, and I think there's a connection happening where, um, you know, your dog's reading me. And these animals that we, we have in our lives read us and offer us insight, offer us healing. And that's what I do with the horses. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's what I love to, um, to share with others. Because when I got clean and then I went to rehab, I then went and spent a summer on a ranch up in Washington, a ranch for men in recovery. And when I got there, the first horse I rode on the first day bucked me off. Ah. Ah. <laughs> but I was okay. And what I noticed was despite all the emotions about it, I could get back on my feet and be resilient. And these animals, especially horses, can teach us that. And if I'm willing to just keep trying, whether it's getting on the horse and back in the saddle or back in the saddle of life, like keeping... Uh, focused on my recovery or whatever I need to be persistent about, that progress will almost always get me to my desired outcome. Wow. I mean, I, I think it's, it's special how you're using animals, horses, sure. to really help people connect with themselves. Mm. Can you share with us a, maybe a story of... Um, you know, obviously without naming names, but of someone that you've helped and they've come mm -hmm. from a bad place and gotten to a good place with the, the help of you and the, and the horses. Yeah. So just totally anecdotally, because confidentiality is so important um, to people and to me. Um, one of the things I see happening is people are getting results faster with the animals. And if you're anything like me, uh, my experience, myself, humans, other humans, we like things fast. So uh, when it comes to empowerment work, I'm seeing people 
in two months, see my clients in two months, get the level of empowerment by working with the horse in equine therapy that they would take about two years to get in the chair of a therapist, traditional psychotherapist. And I'm all for that, by the way. You know, I've been in therapy for 10 years, done the inner child work, tremendously effective. But for certain areas, we can just get in there, get to the root cause, and then get to the solution faster. And I'll I'll say more effectively, too. Um, And then get people relief from what's nagging them. Uh, I see, especially among young men, that from the back of the horse, they're able to go in and find that thorn that's chewing them alive. And I see it on their face when it's about to come up. We're riding down the trail having a talk, and all of a sudden, whatever's eating them up comes out of their mouth. Usually the look on their face is total shock, right? They were never planning to find that, let alone let go of it. And from the back of the horse, it's gone. And now they're in the solution, right? The the thing that was eating them alive no longer owns them, and they're able to move forward. So it, it's it's this notion of riding a horse or being around a horse puts them in a different place where they can feel like that they can open up and release? Mm. Is that what this is about? I think it's one half just magic. I wish I could explain it, right? <laughs> but yeah. the science is beginning to prove and document that this stuff is highly effective also. Um, but we're we're pioneering at this point um, with animal-assisted therapy and equine therapy. Uh, and in a bit of a waiting for the science to catch up from a, a evidence standpoint – there's also lots of evidence that shows the effectiveness already available. Uh, and so we, you know, we just continue to forge forward. And a few examples that um, I can tell you about with the horses include mirroring, right? So horses are prey animals, meaning in nature, something else eats them for dinner. Okay, so they are always on the lookout for their predator. Okay, mm-hmm. and to do that, it's much easier to mix in or camouflage with the surroundings than to stand out. Mm. So they mirror off of their environment, including mirroring off of the environment of the human. Eyes forward equals predator eyes to the side equals prey okay your dog has forward eyes right okay cows goats sideways eyes yeah okay that's how you know if it's a predator or prey interesting okay okay and so when they see us eyes forward come to them eyes side they start mirroring off of us so they're mirroring what we are thinking feeling doing okay and i hate to break it to you but we humans aren't all that self-aware. <laughs> okay. Yes. <But> so <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when twelve hundred pounds of horse stands in front of you and mirrors exactly what you're doing, you get to have a picture of yourself. So let's say I show up, I think everything's good. <clears throat> I'm having a great day. And then the horse is acting highly irritable. I stop. Why is this horse so irritable today? think about it well it can't be me of course i'm (laughs) feeling great i have great self-awareness 
Spend some more time. Horse is still irritable. Uh, could it be me? Oh, there's that feeling. I feel really irritable. The horse just helped me to find my own irritability when I thought I was having a great day. Well, th- this is like ESP kind of thing, right? A little bit. It's just energetic. So the horses yeah. don't think the way we think. You know the, the phrase in my head? Yeah. The horses, they don't have that in their head thing. When they have a feeling, when they sense something, and they're really strong at this, they go straight to action. They skip their head and they go from their heart to their legs moving or meaning they run away. They uh, fight or flight just like us. Okay. Uh huh. And they make that choice like that. They don't have time as a prey animal to think about what's going to eat them. They have time to get into action. So that's so powerful, uh, especially for humans and especially for humans in addiction who are literally stuck in their head. Oh, that's me. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm the king of paralysis analysis. All right. And uh, I can be so stuck in my head. Um, But horses, obviously, yeah, they don't do that. I get it. That's... That's really, I think, part of uh, my gift and truly the horse's gift, high intuition. And for me, I think I got that um, because I was around the horses starting when I was seven. And um, I I noticed these things about myself. And I think, am I more more horse than human sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) We like a centaur, right? (laughs) And and really, it's just the skill of intuition Mm -hmm. and um, listening to my gut and I'll tell you, though, it's also trusting that what's in my gut is going to serve my best interests. And that's been a process to to really trust into that. The horses just trust it naturally. They are going with yeah. their gut. And then if if that horse chooses to run and then he figures out in the process of running that that was not the choice he prefers, he just makes the next choice and the next choice. And then finally he reaches safety and he's OK. And uh, just all off of a bunch of intuitive hits. We humans, analysis, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it, uh, my experience has always been that my gut is usually always right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just based on previous experience and just awareness of what's happening right then. But we can we can let our mind talk us out of what really we should do in the first place. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Wow. This is really neat that you do this with horses. So when when a new person works with you mm-hmm. um, that's never really been around horses, how does that go? Um, they don't just you don't hop on and go for a ride. Absolutely. <laughs> so what 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 typically happens? Well, what happens first is I have a plan how I think our encounter will go. Yeah. And 100% of the time, it never goes that way. But I start with my plan. <laughs> That's life, <Okay>. right? <laughs> and uh, people show up with how they're feeling. Horses decide they don't want to do the work that day. All sorts of variables. Yeah. And uh, the, other, the other thing that's important to know is as fun as it is to ride the horses, I've found that the real meat of this work comes from when we're on the ground with them. And that's because we're at equal power then. And the horse actually feels completely safe to express himself completely honestly. Horses are 100% honest all the time. 
And I think on a good day, we humans, you know, we range around 50 something, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, horses, like it is what it is. And uh, they don't like you. They're going to let you know. They do like you. They're going to let you know. So on. And uh, fortunately, I have those small horses that I mentioned. So for folks who just need or want to feel more comfortable with them, that's uh, a great avenue. And we spend a lot of time just in the energy. Uh, We spend a lot of time in meditation and journaling. Uh, discussion. So as a professional coach, right, I'm here to also interact with uh, that client. Uh, and we just immerse in the horse's energy. The There is recent research that shows the horse has a 15 foot radius on the, the magical um, benefits of being around the heart energy. So they, they transmit that, and that's been proven uh, by scientific research now. So just being present to the horse down on the ranch and, and bathing in that energy is so good for us. Wow. You know, um, I, again, I, I, I can't share direct evidence because I, I, I'm not a horse person. You know, My time around horses is very minimal. Mm-hmm. But I know people have a very special connection with horses. Um. You know, in some ways, different than any other kind of animal, even a dog, mm-hmm. human relations with with horses that have that tight bond. It's like on a different plane. Mm-hmm. Um, I have respect for that. I, I kind of understand that. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, you know, a couple things come up um, here, petting your dog. He's helping me be incredibly present. The horse does that also dogs and, and horses in animal assisted therapy share that benefit. And. Can can you agree that when you're in the present moment, life's pretty perfect? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the horse has no conception, nor does the dog, of the past or the future like our human condition has, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. I can um, start my day with all sorts of obsessing about what may or may not work out next week or next year. And oh. like they're just in the moment, and that's, that's such good medicine for us, right? Then, you know, the other thing that that's... Uh, unique to the horses given their size is I actually find the people who like don't get it or are even afraid of it get the most benefit from it because it's the strongest intervention into whatever's going on. Uh, so I uh, have experienced people who have had a negative experience with these big animals early in life uh, or just have never experienced these animals in their life. Uh, and that really cuts in there at what's going on. And it's a wake up. And it's a wake up to reality because in addiction, life is completely unreality. And I've just found how much I like reality these days. So uh, it's it's really fun to offer that to other folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that because um, when we're going about our lives, you know, we, we lose awareness. We can be in. Uh, a pattern, you know, and, and like we say, uh, disconnecting from ourself. Mm-hmm. I think for many people, a horse is a pattern interrupt, mm. right? It's kind of like a smack upside the head and you're back in reality. Wake up. Yeah. Wake up. You're living right here in, in, in at the moment. Um, yeah, I get that. I think mm. that's, that's, that's special. It's, it's as if literally we get conscious about our own safety around that thing to stay safe. Right. Yeah. We wake up to that reality and then we start to play with our fear and, oh, yeah, temptation. That's even fun, especially take a uh, adolescent temptation. is So interesting to them. 
and they can have healthy temptation with the horse and we can play with with fear with the horse and we can experience it without putting substances in our body we can have a new blueprint for living and uh, so i i see it with the the younger folks that i work with they just eat up that opportunity to play with temptation with the horses um and and i'm there to to keep the guardrails on right mm-hmm. and then whereas they're paralyzed to take action prior to working with me they play with the temptation and learn to take action and get into motion about the next thing to do and the next thing to do because they're present they're correcting with that horse they're adjusting they're navigating so that's that's truly magical to just that's you know when i finish these sessions like i pinch myself and i and i wonder like how did i get here how did all these collisions occur (laughs) so that today i actually think like i am glad that everything happened exactly how it has so that i can be exactly where i'm at yeah yeah well like i say you you have a unique perspective having gone down this path Mm -hmm. and you came out of it with a better sense and now you can help other people you know, escape from that addiction too. Totally. It was dark. I had more sex partners than I can count. Oh yeah. You know, um, I was totally unplugged from my relationship with my partner, um, the suicide attempts that I mentioned, uh, and completely broken. Uh, so if someone is in that kind of darkness, you know, I can relate. And, um, I just came back from hell with a couple buckets of water in my hand and I'm I'm ready to splash those on the flames of some people so they're <laughs> suffering, right? Yeah, uh, that's a gift that uh-huh. I am so I'm so grateful to offer. Because here's the thing: this service is the best medicine for me too. I benefit. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing with service. And um, at the end of my curriculum, there's 26 points in my curriculum. Okay, it's a rite of passage. And at the end of my curriculum, we get into service. And I watch people just come to life and awaken in the joys of helping other people. And so uh, it's my hope that part of this is is passing down some of the joys of service so that more people can get helped and more. I don't know. I, I, I hope, my hope is that when I'm 80 or 90, I'm still doing this and that somebody will help me and wheel me in in that wheelchair to the stable, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I can just facilitate even at that point because this gives me that much joy. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast um, and part of the reason why I have a I call them a swim lanes so or the different categories of topics I enjoy talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, self-improvement is one of them. And I'm doing it not just to offer value to the listeners and viewers of this podcast, but I'm doing it for me because mm-hmm. I learn a lot. Um, and we've done, you know, our, one of our recent guests, Nick Neal, we was there talking about um, uh, mindfulness, meditation. We've done uh, podcasts about journaling, um, I dig it, you know, and, and I, I totally understand what you're saying where you're doing it to help others, but it helps you and it f- fulfills you mm-hmm. and it gives you joy. Mm-hmm. It's neat. So exciting. Yeah, it is. Well, I, I love the synergies in your, in your lanes 
And uh, it really feels interdisciplinary, you know? There's a lot of intersection. Oh, yeah. And um, the uh, the opportunity to bring it together. And um, I, I, I like the holistic work. It's, it's bringing me to the thought of, of, of being holistic. And um, that's what this is all about. Customized and holistic. Yeah. Uh, whatever works for the individual. There's a solution. There's a solution to most problems in this lifetime <laughs> uh, if I'm open to it. If you don't mind, let, let's take a little bit of a detour. Of course. Um, the opioid, opioid epi- epidemic. Sure. Wow, there's a lot of P's in there. The opioid epidemic yeah. um, is a big problem in America. How do you see, is there a solution to this? Hmm. Are there things that maybe our leaders should be doing that maybe they're not doing? Do you have any thoughts on that? Very serious topic. Mm -hmm. Very critical. Well, I think it starts with mental, emotional health. And here in California, we are the first state to have a state attorney general. And she says that toxic stress is the number one threat to public health moving forward. Wow. So toxic stress, we all have a score. We can go, uh, NPR offers a test to get your own toxic stress score. Really? So you can, and you can also address your toxic stress and lower your score. And these aren't things like, um, my six figure job is too burdensome. Okay. (laughs) Right. These are things like if a parent was incarcerated, um, poverty, um, uh, education, um, things um, that are available to a varying extent here in our state. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to look around a place like Poway and think everything's good. <laughs> uh, yes. Right? And I spend some time in some different neighborhoods around the, the county where I get to see that everything is not good. Right. Um, and... In our state, in our county of 3 million, Mm -hmm. there is a very diverse population, uh, including a lot of this toxic stress going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So this this is a time and a place to screen for mental health and emotional health. Uh, I believe that doing it with school-age children is a place to start. I believe that... other critical component is families just talking openly, like talking about how we're feeling, just like we're willing to talk about having a boo-boo on our arm. Mm. Okay. We love mm. to talk about what's physically going on. Okay. And we resist talking about what's going on on the inside. And in, in my experience and in my recovery, I took an inside out approach so I still have some work to do on the outsides, right? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, and sugar has been sugar has been my oh. my demon, my other curse oh. as I work through the coping. Yeah, okay? yeah. Um, I actually have gained weight in my recovery um, as I go through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've worked from the inside out, and that's that's taboo in our culture, right? Uh, you look at who has the most friends or followers. It is on Instagram. It's the people showing the most skin. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's all about vanity right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, other opportunity we have is to provide competent, effective services. Um, I've experienced um, the public system in, in helping some people recently. 
And, you know, it has a lot more to do with what the insurance companies require. Right. What the law says and how to not get sued Mm. than it does with actually helping the people. I believe that. And there is a revolving door downtown uh, over in uh, Sports Arena at the County Medical Health Hospital um, of of people just uh, unable to get stopped on whatever's going on. Because the other thing to know, John, right, is when it comes to addiction, 50% of the time there's a co-occurring disorder involved. So what that means is something like PTS, anxiety, depression, yeah, something else, some other condition is co-occurring. Yeah. Um, so it's very complex. Wow. Yeah, it just seems that um, historically I think our culture has has maybe uh, – how do I say this? Have, has – you don't admit that you have mental you know, challenges because mm-hmm. maybe it's perceived as a sign of weakness. Might get fired from your job. Yeah. yeah. Or you might lose a relationship or you might be thought less of in, in the eyes of other people. But we have no problem showcasing our physical problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is healthy to just to have um, you know, leadership, whether it's in your home or in your community, where it's okay. Mm-hmm. to share and to provide help for people that need it. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Shame, shame is so crippling. And there's a, there's definitely a movement underway. We have the anonymous programs, right? And that is all about the anonymity, the confidentiality, um, which if you go back 70 years when Alcoholics Anonymous was started in that history, it was absolutely critical for it to be anonymous at the time. It was viewed as a moral issue. Yeah. Okay. And we've come so far to understand that it is a disease of the brain. Um, and the, these people were the scourge and the outcast of their family, let alone the community. So hence the importance of the anonymity. And that tradition has remained today. And there's relevance because there's still shame. However... There, in my eyes, is so much relevance to people speaking up to. And um, I feel there's room for both parties, right? This isn't about or, it's about and. And um, through any Google or social media search now, you can find people who are speaking up about the stigma, about their truth, okay? And, um, and living in it, living in it. And what I've learned in living in my truth is the people who went away because I got my truth, like, I'm better off with with us all just being clear on who who we want to be around and who we don't want to be around mm-hmm. than living in some some false reality. By living in my truth, like, I have my tribe today, and I love them more than ever. Um, and and they're, they're the people that really want to be around me. And the opportunity for us to just... Uh, stop, stop living in the false and, uh, and, uh, wasting time, wasting life has coming through. You know, I'm about, I I figure I'm about halfway through life and that's, that's showing up. I don't want to waste time anymore. It's feeling more precious. Yeah. I was thinking about that recently too. Yeah. I'm, I'm well past the halfway point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, life is precious. You know, it's like a YOLO, right? You only live once. Mm-hmm. So make the best of it. I get it. And if you got a couple of challenges, just work to overcome them. Okay. Well, I go to more funerals and know of the deaths of more people now, actually, than back then when I was burning my life down. 
And um, it's both sad, but also motivating. And um, to see the look of heartbreak on a mother's death, mother's eyes or her face, rather, uh, where she buries a son or daughter, you know, it's not supposed to go that way. Yeah. Right. And um, it's shocking and heartbreaking for for that mother to uh, to put somebody um, in the ground so prematurely. So I, I just I've seen that enough times that I'm sick and tired of watching watching that happen, and I'm I'm committed to making a difference about it. It's your mission, yeah. Part and that comes from speaking up. Yeah, back to where we were on this. It comes from speaking up. So. Um, I, I have a purpose in life these days. How can people connect with you? I would love to connect. Thank you. Well, first I'll give my phone number. Okay. Uh, anyone can call or text me and I'm at 858-280-1525. And then uh, the other thing that I offer complimentary is a 30-minute session with me where we can get really clear on a person's individualized action steps to begin recovery and uh, offer that with no commitment, completely confidential. uh, And I'd be glad to uh, get that scheduled with anybody who'd like to go through that with me. Right on. Wow. That's, that's great. Thank you. I mean, because, uh, you're putting yourself out there to offer help to others, mm-hmm. making it easy for them to connect with you. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's free, at least to start, right? So Absolutely. that's great. Um, just another kind of a little bit of a, of a tangent here. Let's do it. So how long have you lived here in Poway? Been about 15 months. Moved up here October 2018. Yeah, what do you like about Poway? Oh, well, I love the open space mm-hmm. and returning to my agriculture roots yeah. uh, with the horses. Uh, I, I actually love that, uh, for the most part, things are, are real civilized up here. Yeah. Uh, come from Pacific Beach, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, if I look at Poway at the macro level, it's really easy to be critical. Um, oh, there's not enough people like me or... Uh, I'm not welcomed here. It's also easy to get into victimization for a person like me. Mm. But if I think about just like meeting you and the other folks that have just shown up by being open, I I like my little tribe here. Nice. And I, I, I like that we do our thing. And uh, I find it just keeps expanding and multiplying and the right people keep plugging in. I also like that, you know, there's people with roots here. They can tell a story about about the history and um, what it's been like. And um, and uh, that's fun that, that there's a culture and a richness to it. I love the farmer's market on Saturdays. Yeah, that's special. It's shocking to me when people have been here for their life and never been. Mm-hmm. So I, <laughs> I invite anyone to go. I love going down there. Um, I love that... You know, I think you'd be surprised to see how many folks younger than me are moving up here into these big houses in groups and doing their millennial thing. Uh, so I love that movement. 
that's happening. Yeah, uh, we, we talked about this when we were at Starbucks. Totally. And how people are moving into these five, six bedroom mansions, but it might be 10 or 15 people, right? Yeah, couples. Uh, well, and it, it comes with an acre and a pool, and they can like do their thing, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty inviting. Wow. And um, I think that then Old Poway will just continue to develop as these, these folks who actually want to get more out of their house then get home and close the door and never go out for the rest of the evening. There's a there's a movement toward some folks ever so slowly who actually want to go out in the evening and do something and do something besides go to the bar room too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so I think it's it's going to be fun and exciting and at the same time like you know the the easiest thing for me to do if this place doesn't work for me anymore is to leave instead of complain about it. <laughs> Just get into action, you know? Yeah. But for right now, in the present moment, it's working so great for me. Well, I'm glad that you really like it here yeah. uh, because, first of all, you're a great person. Um, I get a very positive energy being around you. Thank you. Uh, that you're a, a kind, warm, helpful guy. Um, at the same time, um, I love how, you know, Poway and horses uh, and the openness mm. all kind of connect with what you do and what your history is. So I hope you never leave. I I, I hope you're here for a very long time uh, because you're a a strong asset to this community. I'd I'd love to contribute. I'd love to be more visible. Um, I'd love to get known um, and and truly be a resource because here's the deal. This thing does, as much as we want to think it discriminates, right? Oh, it's those people. This problem of addiction is not discriminating. It's not discriminating on race, socioeconomic. In fact, like I was saying earlier, we actually see with the increases of the alcohol deaths disproportionately women. It's picking... Mm these populations, these demographics who you'd least expect. So I believe from both the data and the evidence, but also when I go to support groups here in town, that this thing is so relevant. This this problem and the solution to it is so relevant even here in Poway. Oh, especially. Yeah. Yeah, because, especially because it's, it's often hidden, mm. right? Um, wow. So um, obviously adults work with you. You work with teenagers too and um, and because they suffer from addiction as well, you know, some of them. It doesn't discriminate on age. So mm-hmm. my experience so far has been that uh, my population is mostly adults. Yeah. However, uh, I am available to people roughly 12 and over um, because we also help in the program folks with other symptoms besides the addiction. So it's symptoms like depression, PTS, anxiety, chronic stress is so common with the younger folks. Um, and uh, then older, which is around where I am. <laughs> is, You're young. <laughs> you know, the midlife crisis is a, oh. a big thing that shows up to uh, like people just without the chemicals. Yeah. Just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Totally. And it's called a midlife crisis. And I, having had a horrific one of my own, I love helping folks with that process. And um, what happens is people end up, when they face it, having a life beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, and man, it's painful to not face it. You know, it's funny, the midlife crisis thing, because I've commented about this to my wife and to some of my friends, how 
I totally get it, right? Like I'm in my mid fifties, mm-hmm. but I was starting to experience it in my late forties, where you're just, you, you like you say, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're fed up with it. You don't want to deal with the stress, you know. And it's you got your career and your family and raising children, and and like you just sort of max out, mm-hmm. you know. And so when you hear of the of the guy going out and dropping a hundred grand on a fancy car, <laughs> you, you, I get it. I understand why people feel and again feel a need to escape mm-hmm. well here's what's happening we spend the first roughly 40 years of our lives so focused on achievement and at some point these systems inside of us want to switch that over to a life based on satisfaction and enjoyment yeah that's a painful transition yeah right the uh i think about the way uh the typical middle level manager's office in a corporation looks with all the trophies. Oh yeah. Yeah. That guy hits 45. He doesn't want another trophy. No, he just wants more time and enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Man, Jake, this is awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I love that shirt too. Yeah. Dope to hope. Yeah. Getting pretty real. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks again. And, um, you you left your phone number. Why don't you repeat it one more time, just in case. Of course. I can be reached phone uh, or text at 858-280-1525. Okay. Jake LeClaire, um, recovery coach. That's right. All right, man. Thanks, Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. All right. 